This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. I have been reflecting about um, patience. partly because of the time that we're in, the time of change, um, partly because Michigan Sensei has invoked it a few times recently, and um, just in myself, I've been thinking about it, and we can always use more of it. And of course, uh, patience in Buddhism is one of the paramitas, one of the perfections. <clears throat> so I was doing a little bit of, of reading on just how even the perfections came about, and it's, uh, it's interesting, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi has uh, an introduction to a treatise called the Kariya Pitaka, the basket of conduct or the basket of proper conduct, um, a commentary by a monk called Akarya Dhammapala, and I couldn't find his, his dates, but they said he was a, an early commentator on, on several of the canonical works uh, sometime after the first Buddhist council. And the first Buddhist council was um, convened about 30 years after the Buddha's death. And, you know, most of the monks were grieving. You know, their great teacher had died. But there was one monk, Sumera, who was actually glad and who said so. And he said, now that the, the world-honored one is out of the way, we can do whatever we want. And so Makashapa got alarmed that the monks would, that this would happen, that the monks would interpret the Buddhist teachings according to what was convenient to them. And so he called this council, it is said of 500 arhats, uh, included Ananda, who was not an arhat at, at the time, and they weren't going to let him in, but the night before he entered stream and was, was allowed to come. And of course, he was the one who had, who remembered most of the Buddha's teachings. So, you know, even then, practitioners were hearing what they wanted to hear and not hearing what they didn't want to hear, reframing the Buddha's teachings in their image. And this uh, basket of proper conduct, it, it, um, it, sets down the the paramitas, actually the ten paramitas in the Pali Canon. And it also uh, speaks of um, the Buddha's former lives, so similar to the Jataka tales, and and sets his development uh, from a bodhisattva to a Buddha, a perfectly enlightened being. And the Buddha himself used this term, bodhisattva, before his enlightenment. And in the Pali Canon, they also recognize the existence of many Buddhas. So Shakyamuni Buddha was not the first, and he wouldn't be the last. And so there was this sense of evolution that a Buddha uh, became one through uh, sometimes eons of practice and struggle. And so this, this bodhisattva ideal began to take shape. And there were uh, originally three 
paths to enlightenment. The, the ideal was the perfectly, perfectly enlightened Buddha, Samyak Sambuddha, who realized themselves without help, without a teacher, and vowed to teach others. Shakyamuni was the supreme example. Then there was a Pratyeka Buddha, who was a solitary Buddha, who had a, a spontaneous realization also, didn't have a teacher, but wouldn't necessarily teach. So it was enlightenment uh, for their own sake. And then there was an Arhat, who was a perfected person, who realized themselves under the guidance of a teacher, and who taught according to their capacity and their inclination. And of course, the, the goal of these three vehicles, uh, or paths, was uh, enlightenment, was nirvana. It was, it was the same, but it was understood that there were grades of difficulty. And Bhikkhu says, perhaps because over time, the, the rarity of a Supreme Buddha appearing in the world became uh, evident that perhaps that was why these three paths and then the three vehicles eventually were, were established. And so one of the, the stories that is set down is, is really what gave birth to the Bodhisattva ideal. And it's said that um, many, many eons ago, uh, the ascetic... Sumera, but that seems like that's the same name of the guy who didn't, who was happy that the, oh no, the monk who, who was glad the Buddha died was Subada, and this is the ascetic Sumera. So he made an aspiration at the feet of Buddha Dipankara, the 24th Buddha of antiquity, and he vowed to renounce his own realization so that he could return uh, in future lives and save all sentient beings. So he, he gave up. He postponed his own enlightenment. And Deepankar confirmed this vow with a prediction that this would indeed be the case. And so Sumera went off into solitude to reflect on what were the qualities that he needed to perfect, that he needed to cultivate in order to become a Buddha. And these became the ten paramis, or paramitas, the uh, requisites of enlightenment. And so it's not enough to have the aspiration to realize yourself. Uh, you must prepare yourself. Right? You must cultivate yourself. And parami means supreme or most Excellent. And paramita, which became the Sanskrit term, is translated as gone to the beyond or gone to the other shore. So it had this sense of, of transcendence. And regardless of, regardless of which Buddha you wished to become, these perfections were indispensable. So the ten paramitas are giving virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. And in the Mahayana, they were um, 
they were syncretized or synthesized into just six, the six that we know, giving, virtue, patience, zeal or energy, concentration or meditation, and wisdom. And they are presented in sequence. And Dhammapala speaks about the reason for, for the particular order in which they're set down. So I'm already transgressing by starting with patience. But, and I have no justification for it other than that was what was most strongly coming up for me. So the Kariya Pitaka says that the fundamental condition for these ten paramitas is great aspiration. And that this is expressed, expressed as crossed, I would cross, as in cross to the other shore. Crossed, I would cross. Freed, I would free. Tamed, I would tame. Calmed, I would calm. Comforted, I would comfort. Attained to nirvana, I would lead to nirvana. Purified, I would purify. And enlightened, I would enlightened. I would enlighten. This is, this is the Bodhisattva's great vow, their aspiration. And that life after life, you wouldn't shrink from such a task, no matter how challenging it would be. It's, they said that if you were told that you had to swim across whole world systems um, filled with water, and you had to swim across them through the strength of your arms, that so you wouldn't hesitate, or you had to cross through fire, or sharp swords, or if you were tortured, that you would uh, not shrink away from fulfilling your vow. Now, patience, or shanti paramita, uh, is defined as, as follows. Patience has the characteristic, characteristic of acceptance. Its function is to endure the desirable and the undesirable, Its manifestation is tolerance or non-opposition. Seeing things as they really are is its proximate cause. So patience, or the practice of patience, arises out of seeing things as they are, seeing what is, and then accepting what is, not opposing what is, enduring what is. We could say that it's not fighting, that it's not rejecting or resenting or begrudging, but a a wholehearted embrace of reality. And it is active. It is very active. You're not waiting for anything. Patience is the unimpeded weapon of the good in the development of noble qualities, for it dispels anger, the opposite of all such qualities without residue. It is the adornment of those capable of vanquishing the foe, the foe of anger or delusion. It is the strength of recluses, a stream of water extinguishing the fire of anger, the basis for acquiring a good reputation, a mantra for quelling the poisonous speech of evil people, the supreme source of constancy in those established in restraint, Patience is an ocean on account of its depth, a shore bounding the great ocean of hatred, a panel closing off the door to the plain of misery, a staircase ascending to the world of the gods, the ground for the habitation of all noble qualities, the supreme purification of body 
speech, and mind. Now, patience is the limit of hatred, the boundary of anger, the, the stopper for poisonous speech. And it is an ocean because of its depth. And it itself has no shore. It has no bounding limits and no restraint, although it requires restraint. It, of itself, is limitless. And so this gives you a sense, just the wording that is being used of, of the power, the power of, of patience and what a, a source of strength it is and how necessary it is for the spiritual path, how it is the ground for living in all the noble qualities. Shantideva, speaking of patience, says that, the, that there is no evil similar to anger and no austerity compared to patience. And Pema Chodron speaks of that word, austerity, and she says that I mean, austerity has the... Um, some of the definitions include uh, self-discipline, or restraint or abstinence. And she says it's the right word, because it takes courage to not meet anger with anger. It takes courage, and I think a deep trust in, in emptiness and impermanence in seeing things as they are. And so Shantideva says, there's no austerity to be compared with patience. Steep yourself, therefore, in patience, in various ways, insistently. Because in just the paragraph before, he said that a flash of anger destroys eons of good works. And who hasn't been there? That, that word, that thoughtless word in the middle of your, your rage, shouted or mumbled you know, to your partner, to your parent or your child, destroying eons of good works. And then the weight, the weight of regret, if not in that moment, if you're too consumed, later. But inevitably, inevitably the karma of impatience, of intolerance. So steep yourself in patience, Shantideva says, Immerse yourself in it, bearing what is difficult to bear. And I think so much of seeing things as they are is really seeing that they are changing, constantly changing. And sometimes we have to be patient and let that change unfold, allow it to be, as Shugen Sensei was saying yesterday, let it be, do not force it. And patience is so often coupled with anger for obvious reasons. You know, we get uh, carried away, and in our impulsiveness, in our thoughtlessness, our carelessness, we hurt one another. But it's also deeply rooted to desire. Deeply, uh, deeply rooted in desire. Um, the Buddha said that we suffer, suffer when we don't get what we want. We suffer when we get what we don't want. We suffer when what we want ends. 
we suffer when what we don't want doesn't end. And when you look at it this way, you realize when this is our framework, we're going to be perpetually dissatisfied. I mean, in a way, we're kind of up shit's creek. And this is how we're, we're uh, operating. And you don't have to be enraged to, to be angry. It can actually be quite subtle, like, a, like an underground stream. It is that, that continuous no, again, that Shugan Sensei referred to yesterday. And impatience is just a, a more subtle form of this no. I don't want this. I don't like this. I don't accept this. And so practicing patience is falling into neither one, desire or aversion. And try that. You know, next time you're faced with something that you don't like or don't want, to say to yourself, if that's how things are, to say, I accept this. You know, it's, it's so simple in one way, and it's so difficult to do, and takes great courage. I accept this without defiance, without resistance. And Dhammapala says that uh, patience is listed after energy in the Ten Paramitas because um, it's fueled by energy, it's fueled by effort, by exertion. And it also tempers that very exertion and leads to equanimity. It's called the adornment of energy. Isn't that nice? The practice requires tremendous effort and infinite infinite patience. You can't make yourself be where you're not, but you can always practice. You can always practice. And you can do so half-heartedly, or you can do it with every bit of you. And tiredness actually has no bearing on it, because you can have this much energy, or you can have that much energy, and you can still practice wholeheartedly. not leaving anything out, anything you're feeling, anything you're experiencing. That is what wholeness means. So if you're, you are greatly tired, that is what you practice, patiently. And in order to train in patience, we begin with the little things, Shantideva says. Because if you can't, if we can't do it with those, there's, how will we possibly do it when we're faced with great adversity. He says, there's nothing that does not grow light through habit and familiarity. Putting up with little cares, I'll train myself to bear with great adversity. So what seems difficult becomes easier with time. We know this as we become familiar with it, as we get used to it. The posture, concentration, whether it's on or off the cushion, little by little we become familiar. And what was heavy becomes light. And Sashin is the perfect training ground for all those 
little cares that we have to face, that open window right above your head in the morning in the zendo, somebody taking your bench, the missed dokson, the unpassed koan, the look somebody gave you or they didn't give you. All those little cares that uh, Kiensen or Barimpoche calls them bourgeois suffering. When uh, Tenke and I were coming back from Florence, we were at the airport, so we're, we're right on our way back. And the airport is, is really little more than a hangar with a tiny food court. Though even there, uh, Tenke noted that the coffee is lovingly made cup by cup. No um, nasty percolator for the Florentines. And we were waiting to board the plane, and so the, the gate opens, and they put us all in one of those little buses. And it was a full flight, so we're standing pretty tight uh, against one another. And then we just sit there for maybe 15, 20 minutes. And, you know, that's not very long, but if you're standing this close to each other, it feels a little bit longer. And so we're just standing there and standing there and waiting, waiting. And just when it felt like somebody was about to do something, the driver came and got in and started the bus. And then we go about, I don't know, 20 feet. He stops, opens the door, and there's a, there's a plane. And we're like, really? We couldn't just walk to the plane? <laughs> Those little, little cares. And how do you deal with it? How do you deal with, these, uh, with this bourgeois suffering? Um, by not, not fretting. Not fretting. Yeah. If there's a remedy when trouble strikes, what reason is there for dejection? And if there is no help for it, what use is there in being glum? And it seems so simple. Then why is it so difficult to do? When somebody takes your bench, why is it such a thing, such an event, such an offense, such an insult, an affront? And why does worrying, why does it feel like it helps, like it does something? I think there's, there's a strange comfort we take from worrying. And it's hard. It's hard to let it go. And these are little worries. What about great adversity? What about old age? What about illness? What about death? Shouldn't we worry about those? Shouldn't we at least think about them, plan for them? St. Francis once chided one of his monks because he soaked the beans overnight. And he said, you know, our vow is to not think of tomorrow. Their, their food was often inedible, unfortunately, <laughs> his biography says. <laughs> and when it wasn't, when it tasted a little too good, he would mix it with water or with ashes so he wouldn't enjoy it too much. So, you know, there are those, or there were those, who lived and practiced with no thought of tomorrow. No, there probably still are. There probably still are. And... That, too, is difficult to do, especially if others depend on you. 
or your children or your parents, you know, if you share a life with others, that is difficult to do. But is it possible to plan? Dada Roshi used to say this all the time. Is it possible to plan when planning is needed without worrying? Yes. Yes, it means you, know, you don't ignore tomorrow, but you're not sitting there waiting for it either. Because it may or may not come. And we certainly hope that it will, but we can't guarantee it. None of us can. That's the racer's edge of a human life. You know, it's, it's just long enough. We hope that it's just long enough to get us off our butt and wondering, what is this? And what do I do about it? The suffering compels you to look for another way, doesn't it? And being in Florence, at one point I turned to Tank and I said, why would anyone want to practice here? It is so incredibly beautiful. It, it felt like the God realm. What we saw of Florence, I am certain it's all not all like that. And yet it has one of the most violent histories I've ever read. And they were always fighting. And even now you can feel they're, they're, they're not fighting so much, but there's a, there's a pride in them that I actually had never quite encountered to that, that degree. And there's something very um, impressive about it. And you also think, but what had to happen to, to form a, a, a people, a consciousness like this? And, you know, they, they were, for, for years, they were, they were fighting amongst them, themselves, the, the Guelphs and the Ghibellines um, who supported the Pope or the Roman Emperor. And the Guelphs won, and they split into the blacks and the whites, and they were called that because one of the matriarchs of the family was called Bianca, means white. And that, the story of how that split happened was that two boys, children really, from each of the families were playing with swords. You could ask yourself why. Why were they playing with swords? But they were. And one of them nicked the other one. And so his father sent him to apologize to the other father's house. And what the victim's father did when the boy arrived is he had his servants grab him and chop off his hand on a butcher block. And he sent him back to his father with a message, tell your father that iron, not words, is the remedy for sword wounds. And that single incident, and probably others, started a feud that lasted a couple hundred years. A flash of anger shattering eons of good works. How many examples of this have we seen through the ages? I mean, this just seems like we're just here sitting in our little cushion practicing patience. This is human history. This is our life. A word, a slight that fueled whole wars. Deluded belief that fueled genocide. That's why these are perfections. When practiced, they have the power to alter the destiny of a nation. And so too, when they are not practiced.
So if we can't be patient in the face of a slide, how will we be patient in the face of great adversity? And remember the definition, which actually also tells you how to practice. Patience has the characteristic of acceptance. Its function is to endure the desirable and the undesirable. Its manifestation is tolerance or non-opposition. Seeing things as they really are is its proximate cause. So first you have to see clearly. And then we have to accept and tolerate, not oppose. Endure what we desire. Endure it because it will end. Endure it, endure what we don't desire. It too will end. And when we're insulted or harmed by others, we remind ourselves that they too are caught in their suffering. And that through practicing patience, Paramita, we heal ourselves and we heal them. That is the power of virtue. That is his unlimited nature. And at the same time, it's important to acknowledge that you know, acceptance is not resignation and is never blind. Sometimes things as they are should be changed. If you're in, a, in an abusive relationship, if you're in an untenable job, if you're the victim of injustice, perhaps there is something that you need to do more than just accept Earlier I was saying that the fundamental condition for uh, these paramitas is aspiration, but there's also several external conditions, if you will. And the first is that you have to be born human. Only a human can can aspire to enlightenment because beings in the other realms are too preoccupied with suffering or with desire to even give rise to that thought. So you have to be born human. But two of the other seven conditions, and this is said in the Kariya Pitaka, are that uh, you have to be male and you have to be a monk to realize yourself. And the reason that is given for this is that the Buddha was a man and that he was a monk. And so it's kind of a, a perfect self-perpetuating system, isn't it? Kind of like the, the infallibility of the Pope, The Pope is infallible because he has universal power over the whole Catholic Church. And, you know, as a Buddhist, as a a female, as a lay practitioner, I do not accept that only men or monks can realize themselves. I mean, if I believe this, I wouldn't be sitting here. Neither would 95% of you. And I don't really think this is things as they are. I think this is things as a small group of people wish them to be. Hopefully back then. Maybe that it is said out of fear that without such a resting place, things would not abide. That that phrase comes to me often in, in different circumstances. It's Master Dogen, Mountains and River Sutra. But why else, rather than out of fear, would you exclude the majority of people from enlightenment? 
exclude them for, from realization of their own intrinsic Buddhahood. And I also acknowledge that I, I don't know. I don't live back then. And I am not a man. And I'm certainly not the Buddha. And so I don't know. But what would this world be like if we didn't live in fear? Because I think so much of um, the lines, the limits that we draw is said out of fear. Out of fear that things will change, that things will not abide, that things will end. So that fear of, of not getting what we want and of losing what we have. And, and in one way, I was thinking that it's, it's, it's understandable, that fear. When I just feel it in myself, it's understandable. Because there is suffering. It, it is all-pervasing, all-pervading. All and we have a very precarious existence, as human beings. I mean, one, you, you, you touch one little strand on the web and the whole web shudders. And so it is, um, if not skillful, it's understandable that we respond with fear. But I also, I also know that this uh, bright, luminous nature emptiness, the empty nature of all things that is the nature of all things and that has no characteristic in a way that I can't explain, I feel has as its essence goodness and love and that it is indestructible. And I don't know how that is so. I can't explain how that is so, but I I know that it's so. And because it is so, fear has no purchase. So on our meditation cushion, we discern when do we need to affect change, when do we need to allow it. Since change happens, the question is, how do we relate to it? And this is where patience comes in. And as I've, I've said many times before, um, anything worth doing takes time. You know, the uh, Ghiberti's doors in the baptistry in Florence took him 50 years to make. And we go there and we stand outside, apart, in front of them, and we ooh and we ah for five, ten minutes. And we take a few pictures and we say, there, I've seen it. I've seen Ghiberti's doors. Or Michelangelo's David, we check. The dome, we check. We check it off. We don't have to be tourists of our practice. You know, tourists in our own mind. Because if we want our lives to be transformed, if, they, if we want our lives to be practiced, then we can't be casual about it. We can't say, well, this is important, but that isn't. This I'll do quickly, and that I'll ignore. 
are focused just on this. It has to include all of it, which means that we have to slow down so that we can take it all in. And really, even if we could, even if we could leave anything out, why would we want to? For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.